Well, thank you for joining us this evening. It's so wonderful to be here to celebrate a new book in person after two years of virtual events. It's pretty wonderful to see everybody's faces <laughs> and to do phone interviews. Well, first of all, we have to learn how to pronounce the woman's name that we're talking about. Not Mary Con Farrell, but Catherine Leroy is what I said. And when we did an interview, she said, well, you won't really know how to know how to have to say her name, you know, because you're just writing about her. And here we are tonight. And apparently there's a very specific French pronunciation. Well, not that I can say it. <laughs> One of I, was, I was well into the book before I talked to someone who knew Katrine and told and just referred to her as Katrine Lois. And so I've been practicing that French name for over, over a year now. I, I, I'm not confident in it, but I'm going to try. So we're going to let Mary try, and I'm just going to butcher it and say Catherine Leroy, because I barely speak English, and we should all be happy that I can do that at this point, right? So first of all, let's talk about some of the women that you've written about and that we heard about in the presentation. Obviously, courageous women captivate you and their untold stories. So Fanny never flinched, pure grit, standing up against hate, and now close up on war. What draws you to these stories, and what, if anything, do all of these women have in common? What has drawn me to each of these women initially has been their individual story. When I discovered Fanny Sellens, and I learned that the mine owners had wanted her dead, she was warned she should leave town because she was such a powerful union organizer that they did not want her there and she was warned to leave town or she'd be killed. She didn't, she didn't leave. She stayed and she was shot to death on a picket line in front of about 60 witnesses who were immigrants. Many of them didn't know English. She was shot to death by sheriff's deputies who were in the pay of the mine operators. And no one ever was brought to justice for that crime because the story that was told in the American, I'm sorry, American newspapers. <laughs> and was that she had incited a mob and was killed, I don't know, in self-defense. There were 10 or 11 bullet holes in the fence. She had three or four bullet wounds that killed her. She wasn't armed. Anyway, <laughs> that, that story really, really, I wanted to know, what I wanted to know was, where did she get that courage? How did she get to the point where she was willing to give her life? And luckily, I was able to find that in the research. For a long time, I didn't know if I would. But I eventually came across a quote from her where she 
talk about when she went on the road to organize uh, union workers across the country and speak at union halls. At one point she said, because she had started in the garment industry in St. Louis, she said, every time I got up to speak, I was frightened. But I thought of those girls at their sewing machines. And that gave me courage. And it was her compassion and her love for the working people and her desire for justice for them that brought her that courage. So do you see commonalities between Fanny and Catherine? Catherine was wounded pretty severely <laughs> in a firefight. Yeah, I guess that I, I, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but Kat, Katrine had, she was in Vietnam for a reason, and she didn't really even realize until she'd been there for a while. And she came to the realization that she was there to show the compassion between soldiers the bonds that develop in combat. And she knew she was risking her life. So of all the women that you've written about, is there one that you feel personally most connected to when you were working on the story? Or obviously you admired them and wanted to share their stories, but is there one of them more than the other that you felt the most personally connected to? I, I felt connected to Catherine because she was, because I used to be a journalist, um, I felt connected to the World War II nurses who were uh, taken captive by the Japanese. I felt connected to them because I met some of their families, their daughters. And I'm, I, they were wonderful. They, they made me part of the family, and they were willing to tell the story. So I felt very connected to them. So I guess I can't say that I was connected to anyone in particular. I mean, I think Fanny will always be like a, just I'm, I'm, I'll always be inspired by her. And didn't it take a while for you to get that story published or find an audience for it? Yes, when I was trying to sell uh, the manuscript for Fanny, it was back in the early 2000s, and I was told several times that publishers were not looking for stories about women nobody had heard of. <laughs> in fact, once at a conference, um, I heard the advice, it would be better to write a new angle on George Washington than a woman that nobody's heard of. Now your audience is teens, um, although most of us have write your books and enjoy them as well. But why did you target your writing to that particular age group as opposed to younger age groups or adult nonfiction? Why, why teens? Well, first I have to say, I tried to target to younger children. I wanted to write a picture book. I wrote a picture book about Fanny Sellins getting shot to death on the picture book. <laughs> did, not, did not go over. <laughs> so that's one reason. But <laughs> I think the, like, 
the first uh, young adult teen uh, nonfiction book that I published was Pure Grit about the POW nurses. And there were already two adult books published about those nurses that are wonderful. Um, we Band of Angels and all, uh, I forget the other one, it's been a few years, but those books are fabulous. They're really highly researched and footnoted and it'll take you a while to read them. But when I read this story, I had already been trying, I had already been writing fiction for young people and I thought, I can tell this story, first of all, with a lot of pictures that the adult books have a few pictures in the center. Um, but also, I can tell it in a way that is very concise compared to these, not that those long books aren't great, we all read those long books and we love the information, but a lot of us don't have time to read as many of those books as we would like. And so I thought, I can write this story in a way that is very concise, that is very compelling, that has a fast pace, and it will be attractive to teens, hopefully, who would rather maybe watch video. <laughs> and that's kind of what my goal has been with all my books, to keep, to make it a quick read for somebody who wants the story, who wants the compelling, powerful nature of the story, but doesn't have time for all the details. You still are pretty footnoted, I gotta say. There's, there's a lot of footnotes. <laughs> and hopefully teenagers do understand that citing and sourcing is very important. Um, so let's talk about your current book, Close Up on War, and about how you came to that a little bit. I guess what really compelled me as a reader was finding out that she had spent, Catherine had spent the most time in the battlefield of any other photojournalist, the only one official journalist to you know, jump out of an airplane during combat. Um, in your research and in reading her letters, to what do you attribute her access and how she was able to spend so much time on the ground um, with the troops? It was pretty impressive. Yes, it was very impressive, and there are several factors. I think one of the factors, to be totally honest, was that she didn't have much money, and when she was in the field, she could the, the men would share their sea rations with her, sea rations, whatever they are. How do you pronounce that? I can't pronounce any words. <laughs> sea rations. We can read them and write them. Yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah. um, she would, um, she got this, I, she, she got this habit of picking up this, in, in Saigon she could find these cans, six pack cans of Beaujolais wine. And wine? Yes. Doing Before, yeah, 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 this is in the 60s. And she would pack that in her, in, with her camera equipment in her poncho, and then when she would get out there, she would trade it to the, to the men for food. Oh my goodness. So and that, that gets you pretty good acceptance. If you come there and booze, you're pretty she also welcome. She also taught them how to make hot chocolate out of their chocolate or packet and powdered milk or whatever they had. So, um, so that was one thing. But the other thing was that she was 
extremely, well, some people called her outrageously aggressive. She, she was very determined, and she knew what she wanted to do, and she put everything into it. And one of the things about Vietnam at that time, in 1966 through 60, beginning of 69, was really the only thing that stopped you from going anywhere was finding a ride. If you wanted to go somewhere and you could find a chopper or a truck or a plane that was going, that had room, you could go. I mean, there were times when she waited, there were times when she waited at uh, places where battles were had taken place for the wounded and dead to be taken away in the helicopters before there was room for her. Um, but not everybody embraced her while she was there. It wasn't, I mean, she found access but there were also soldiers there who felt that women should be at home and that you wrote in your book that that's what they were fighting for is so the women could stay home and take care of the children. So to have this little tiny petite blonde uh, French woman slogging through the rice paddies wasn't always, she wasn't welcome everywhere. But to me as a journalist the most discouraging thing in reading was how her fellow journalist tried to sabotage her when she was there. So tell us a little bit about what happened from her so-called, you know, colleagues. Well, at first, uh, when she arrived and she had the blonde pigtails and she looked like a child, everyone, all the quotes I found about her was that she looked like a child and nobody was threatened by her at all. But as soon as she started selling photographs and winning awards, that changed and it the, the trouble actually started well I don't know when the trouble started but the but the effort to take to get her press credentials revoked started with the French press agency but it didn't end with them um, apparently she did okay so she didn't know English when she arrived <laughs> She only spoke French and she spent a lot of time, she always said, I learned English from the Marines. <laughs> so she had a very colorful... <laughs> and she had a very throaty French accent. <laughs> so there is a story that after she made that parachute jump, she tried to get on another operation and the officer who was very high up, said no. And uh, she persisted. And later she said, I, I, uh, she, there were, she denies that she kicked him. <laughs> she admits that she cussed at him. But what happened was, these other journalists who began to become very jealous of her success secretly started keeping a file of complaints against her and they were in, they got in cahoots with the military uh, public relations people who gave the press credentials. They called it the little, they called it the black book 
This is a secret file because she was loudmouthed, dirty. Well, if you've been out in the jungle for a week or two, you're dirty. Um, she she was not she was not properly behaving, and she was making a poor. She was making the other journalists, uh, photographers, look bad. It's pretty hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> so they, so they got her press after this incident with the. It might even have been a general. Uh, they got her press credentials revoked, and she said later, "I don't know." They, I, they said I was revoked for six months, but I never left the country. <laughs> well, the story that I did find out was a, a French photographer who was a friend of hers. She went to lunch with him after this happened, and he describes it that she was crying, and she was, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to have any money. I'm not going to be able to take any pictures. And so he went and talked to the military people who had revoked the crest credentials. And he, he, didn't, he said, I don't know if it was me or what it was, but they reinstated her credentials. When I asked you what you most admired about her, you said she was her ambition. And I thought that, that struck me. I thought, why? We don't necessarily think of ambition as something admirable, especially sometimes in a woman. So why did her ambition, what about that struck you? Um, as something to that you really wanted to focus on? I first learned about her ambition by reading her letters, and she was so honest in her letters about, I'm going to win this award, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And it wasn't, and I admired that because in my experience as a woman from a young age growing up, you didn't say these big things that you were planning to do. I mean, I remember in grade school, I'm going to be the first woman president, you know, but you, if you were seriously, if you were serious about your career, you had to follow, you had to, you had, you had to follow, I don't know, unwritten rules. But later I found out that she was not, her ambition was in those letters. And it was very, her, very personal to her. But she was not open about it. She was actually a very humble person about her success. And I think that people would have only known about her ambition because of how hard she worked and how determined and persistent she was. You mentioned the letters, and really that's what got this book started. So let's talk a little bit about your research and how important were those letters? Um, I know you were able to receive them and have them translated. These are the letters that she wrote home to her parents. And sometimes we might write things to our parents that are a little bit more vulnerable and also a little bit more protected than we would write to other people. So how important were having those letters during your research um, to the writing process and including um, excerpts in the book as well? Well, to me, the letters made the story, because without those letters, you have photographs of Vietnam, and you have facts about Vietnam, and you have some facts about where she went and what she did. But those letters 
brought me onto the ground with her. And the, actually, because I wanted to write the book for teens, the letter, the, the one sentence from one letter where I said, okay, this can be a book for teens, is when she asked her mom to send her Tampax. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, you're in the jungle in a war, and you have to worry about Tampax, and most people don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> and so I thought, this is something teens can relate to. But her letter, she wrote over a hundred letters over the uh, three years that she was there, and they were to her mom and dad. And to her mother, she wrote, often they sounded like they were postcards from vacation. And that, I'm sure, was because she didn't want to worry. Her, her parents never did not want her to go um, when she went to Vietnam. And I'm sure she didn't want them to worry about her. So she took a very light tone about what uh, maybe souvenirs she was going to send home and, and that. And, and, and how her tan was great, and she wanted this bikini or that bikini for her mom to send to her. And then to her father, she would write about her successes and um, what her plans were, and it was all a lot more. I kind of felt like she really was trying to impress her father with her, with what what she was accomplishing. So they humanized her experience as more than just someone taking pictures on a battlefield. Right, right. But as a woman trying to survive also. Um, you said this book was the most painful of your books to write, even more painful than Fanny, which doesn't exactly have a happily ever after um, ending. And you said it was because the Vietnam War, you were living during this time. So it's not like writing about World War II, which was history, but this was very um, present in your your mind and in your memory, how did that inform your writing of this book? I, I actually was very young during the Vietnam War and my family did not have a television. So I'm not one of those people that saw the pictures on TV. Um, I heard some things on the radio when I really was introduced on a personal level to the Vietnam War was when I was a reporter at KXLY in the early to mid-80s. And this was a time when a lot of the veterans were beginning to speak out about their experiences. A lot of PTSD was being um, diagnosed. There was a, a Vietnam Veterans Center over on Division Street. I remember going over there and interviewing veterans and hearing their stories firsthand. I remember when the movie Platoon came out and I went to interview veterans about that movie. And there was a time when I said to myself, this is so painful and I have heard more than I ever want to hear about Vietnam because I've been interviewing these veterans. So when I started researching this book, what I really, the way it informed my writing was that I felt that along with Catherine's story, I had to get across some very important aspects of the war, and again, in that very concise, powerful way. 
And one of the things that touched me a lot was Catherine would talk about people she met. At one point she talked about this captain who was in the cavalry and 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 she went to his B company and did this and that. And so I looked him up because I needed to figure out she I sometimes she didn't have the name spelled right. I wasn't even sure who she was talking about, but I wanted to confirm who this guy was and get the name right. So I looked him up, and he was killed uh, four months after she had been with his company. And um, so, as I, as what we know now about how the military, the the leaders, the political leaders, and the military upper echelons were lying to the American people about what was happening in Vietnam. And then to be really, I get, I don't know how to describe it, how you get when you're, re, when you're writing someone's story, you're, you're really with them. And Kath, Catherine is, talking about these young men and I'm seeing what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis with them and then I know that that this line was going on and and these these men were being these men were dying for what I I tend to thought was no reason at that point and the other thing was that it was very painful for me was the civilian casualties, the massive civilian casualties, and to and to to really just to have to be with all this over a period of time, it it was painful. Well, and her photos are just unbelievable. I mean, when you look at them and realize where she must have been to get the shot that she had taken and what was entailed, what was going on around her. Um, and the book is just chock full of these amazing photos. Are there, is there any certain photo or one certain set that when you're putting the book together, you looked at it and you thought this has to be included or that really got to you as uh, an example of where she was and what the story she was telling? Yeah, she really, really admired this uh, Robert Kappa, who is like maybe the most world famous combat reporter who actually was killed in Vietnam in the early 60s. His thing was, if your picture's not good enough, you're not close enough. And she took that to heart. And the pictures that I think touched me the most were the pictures when she, when she, she said, when you're with men in combat, everybody's masks are gone. And you see them for who they really are. And so pictures like this, um, where she was close enough to show that reality of what those men were experiencing were very powerful for me. And I think they were powerful to the American public. That is why her pictures, why she, why her pictures were published around the world. 
because she had a way of catching the reality of a moment that you cannot look away from. And back to um, uh, politicians telling lies about what's going on, the Vietnam War was the first time where we had it in our living rooms and we could see the reality no matter what was being spoken from the White House or any place else, we could actually see the truth of that. And going back to your earlier career in journalism, you spoke about um, Gonzaga Professor Rod Clifton inspiring you when he shared his vision of how journalism could be a force for good. And when we spoke, we talked about um, the state of journalism today and what, what young people are, are, are they gonna know what fake news and real news is? And you, you sounded hopeful from your talking um, with high school teachers that maybe they are being taught what the difference is. But let's talk a little bit about journalism now and then. I mean, during the Vietnam War, um, boots on the ground with journalists actually showing what's documented that can't be you know, altered or, or fake. Well, now I guess it can be. Um, compared to the state of journalism today, do you still feel like journalism's a force for good and telling these kinds of stories um, can further good things and truthfulness? I, I hope so. I hope so. I, um, one of the things that Catherine said was during the war in Iraq, she said you could, this was when CNN was first doing 24-hour news, she said you could watch 24-hour news of what was going on in Iraq and not see anything. The best pictures, the most telling pictures that came out of that were taken by soldiers. And today with Ukraine, Um, I haven't checked. I haven't checked up to date. But last I checked, five journalists have been killed in Ukraine. And I do think it's important. I do think it's important that people are on the um, front lines, finding out what's happening and showing us what happened. What's happening? What I what I fear is that that we become. I can't think of <laughs> we, we become uh, too used to it, that it doesn't impact us in the way maybe it impacted people 50 years ago, because we see it all the time. And so I worry about that, um, and I worry about fake news. I. I, I think part of the reason I think this book is so important is to kind of, kind of point out that there is a certain kind of, I don't know if you want to call it a line in the sand, but when, when someone's willing to risk their life to tell you a story and to show you pictures of something, then that, to me, has a has more value than something that someone decides to talk about on a radio show or, or post on a, on a website or, a, or whatever. I mean, there's a difference between those two. So you write a lot about courageous 
women in particular, what does courage look like to you? Well, I guess the one thing after writing these books I realized it looks different in every situation and for every person. One of the things in researching about the black women in World War II that I realized there were different ways that they were um, faced, they, they were serving in a segregated army. So from the get-go, they were your second class. And then there was the obvious other racist things where people attacked them in bus uh, terminals because they couldn't stand the idea of a black wearing a United States military uniform. They were physically attacked. Um, so then they were given job. They, the white wax were given different jobs than the black wax. That's Women's Army Corps. And so. They reacted in different ways. Some of the women said, I've had enough, and they quit, and they left. Uh, some of the women um, just kind of took a long view and said, I'm doing this because I think this will help make things better for my children and my grandchildren. So I am just going to try to get by as best I can and put up with this discrimination and uh, racism and just do this. And then there were other women who went on strike against the United States Army and refused to work, refused to go to work, were court-martialed because they were protesting the jobs. They were given jobs. The, the commander at the hospital said, there won't be any black, black women taking temperatures in my hospital. The black women are here to scrub the floors and do the dishes. So these women were fed up and they went on strike. I mean, that is courage. Amazing courage. That's incredible courage. But there, you know, I, the other women had courage too in whatever they were. And then uh, Major Charity Adams, who's kind of one of the most famous black women from that uh, time period and the head of the 6888 battalion that went to England, she was in a very difficult position because she was an officer uh, charged with carrying on these racist policies. I mean, she was, in, she was implementing these racist policies and she was also trying to support the black soldiers. So she was in a very difficult position. So what does courage like, look like for her? She said at one time, she said, I decided that I would step sideways if I have to, but I will never step backward. And when the test came for her was when she was in England and her troops were supposed to be on um, up for uh, I'm sorry, I can't think of the word, when the general or the colonel comes to review your troops. And the white colonel came, a man, reviewed her troops and had some issues. And he said to her, I'm going to have, she's a major, I'm going to have a white lieutenant come and take over your troops. 
And in that moment, Charity made a decision because she knew what she was supposed to say, which was, yes, sir. And she had all of her troops there watching her to see what she would do. She said, over my dead body. And she was court-martialed. She, she put her entire military career on the line in those few words. And she, when she was court-martialed by this colonel, she was smart. And she found a way that he was not going, like this was a technicality. You know how usually they use technicalities to get people off who shouldn't be getting off? Well, she found a technical, technicality that he was doing that was against army policy about calling attention to racism when we're in the middle of a war and we're all supposed to look on the surface like we don't have any of these divisions. The army had a policy about not highlighting racist, racism differences. So she filed court-martial charges against him. <laughs> and and he, he, he contacted her, probably not in person, probably with a memo. He said, if you'll, if you'll re pull your charges, I'll pull mine. <laughs> she said, she pulled hers. <laughs> Well, we want to um, leave time for audience questions, but I do have a final question from you. You said your mom always said you'd be an author, but you thought that would be too boring. <laughs> so, well, is it? It's, it's not boring, <laughs> but it's less physically active. <laughs> it's not very physically active. You, you, sit in a, you sit basically in a chair all day long, it's not, it's, not, it's not physically active, but it's mentally stimulating. Not boring. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us tonight. We're going to have Christy come and have some questions from the audience. Just stretching. You talked about her combat jump. Was that 1967 and was that part of Operation Junction City with the 173rd? Yes, it was. Thank you. The photograph of her jumping out of the plane, um, what, what, how did, she, how did she get to jump out of a plane? Why was that something that she aspired to do? Well, she wanted to go on any operation she could get, but she had made friends with these airborne uh, officers, and they actually, the colonel actually came to her and invited her to go on that jump. And she, this was one of the areas where there were uh, there was a lot of nastiness among her colleagues because she was the only there were army journalists 
on the planes and there for the jump. But she was the only civilian photographer or reporter to make that drop. And there were lots of rumors about why she got that opportunity with that colonel. And it was absolutely not true. That colonel knew that before she even came to Vietnam, she had 84, she was a skydiver. She had 84 uh, jumps before that, and almost half of them were in free fall. So she was very experienced, um, and that's why she got to do it. Jumping out of the plane, I think she was really, she was the first combat photographer to take those kind of pictures, jumping out of the plane with her camera strapped around her neck. Just unbelievable. Questions? Right here? Um, she, she covered both sides of the war, didn't she? She, she covered, took Vietnamese pictures too? She did. She did. Um, she is one of the very few uh, people who were captured by the North Vietnamese and lived to tell the story. Um, she was captured during the Battle of Hue. Um, she was held for several hours and convinced the North Vietnamese to let her take pictures of them. <laughs> this is another thing. I read somewhere she charmed her way out of this. No, she did not charm her way anywhere. And the someone else said the North Vietnamese let it go because they want they couldn't they had to get rid of her. They had enough. <laughs> so maybe there's a little truth in both of those, but. To my view, she, they, she, she was a journalist, and she knew that her number one thing was to get the story, and she did what she had to do to get the story. That um, she was with another French uh, journalist, and they had hidden. She had hidden her American papers in her bra, and they insisted they were French. Uh, journalists and that they were writing a story for a French news magazine and so they were they were let go. Another question over here. How have you gone about discovering these women that no one's heard of? <laughs> well honestly every single one of these books that I've written I discovered by accident. <laughs> I mean, I just happened to come across them for one reason or another. And at first I thought that it was difficult to find women like this, but I've been writing a blog for over 10 years now, and most of the posts are about historical women who you have never heard of, who have done amazing things, and I always think I'm going to run out. I, I have realized I will never run out. There are so many out there, and there are more popping up every day. Um, it's a great time for um, 
it's a great time to be a writer. I mean, the publishers are now, not, not only do they want to publish unknown women, they want to publish uh, people of color, they want, to publish, they want to publish everything that they didn't want to publish 10, 15 years ago. And a lot of these women are finally, I think, getting their due. Well, right now I'm writing about wolves. <laughs> Something totally different because I haven't discovered another woman that I want to write about. I, um, I've written all of these books because when I discovered these women and these events, I, I felt like I couldn't not write them. Most of them, like, there's never been another book about Katrine Lois. She's part of a book on, um, with two other women journalists in Vietnam that came out last year. Um, but before that, she, there was no book ever written about her. There's been no book written about Fanny. There was no, you know. I, my editor wants me to do another book. He's waiting to hear what woman I want to do next, but I, I don't think I can do it. It's a lot of work. <laughs> and you have to work on it for years. And so in order to write a book about something, I have to be so excited about it and so invested in it that I am willing to think about it, read about it, write about it for three or four years before the book even comes out. And then I have to continue to promote the book. So I have to really, really be thrilled about the topic. And right now, <laughs> I went to Yellowstone and I watched the wolves and I am thrilled about the wolves. So that's what I'm writing about. That's awesome. Well, I can say again for Northwest Passages, we are thrilled that you wrote this book and that you were here with Cindy tonight. Thank you again very much. Thank you.